Warning. Bread. It is bread that the revolution needs. Wrong. Wrong. Seriously. Wrong. And it sounds right. Wrong. I made a mistake. Wrong. Wrong. Completely wrong. Wrong. Seriously. Wrong. No, seriously. Wrong. Wrong. Seriously. Wrong. Wrong. Completely wrong. 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 Hey, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Seriously Wrong Podcast. We're the only podcast that is going to create 10,000 years of world peace after we successfully release 1,000 episodes. Uh, that is the key thing that distinguishes us from other podcasts. Yeah, and we can make metaphysical guarantees like that with certainty about the future because we're the only podcast that has access to the multiverse and to all possible futures. And so we're able to select from within those and sort of visit them and see what the difference is. And yeah, every universe where we've had 1000 episodes does have 1000 years of world peace. So that's a, that's a metaphysical guarantee. Yeah. That you can take to the spiritual bank beyond time and space. Nothing more uh, objective than that. So yeah, actually we have, we should say our names and stuff. This is the, I'm Sean. This is the voice of Sean. Okay. I, yeah. I was going to say, should we say our names first? I'm Aaron, by the way. Uh, but, or should we ask people for money first? You know, like which one is incentivized in this capitalist system to, should we introduce ourselves first or just say, you know, if you want us to reach that thousand episodes, we're going to need people to sign up on our Patreon. Uh, I didn't even think that we were setting that up so perfectly. And you have to do it every time because there's a person with a loaded gun, metaphorically speaking, but also in a sort of literal sense, pointing at us, threatening uh, our progeny if we don't manage to make enough money to survive. Yeah, that metaphorical loaded gun pointed at you. It has, you know, not enough food, not enough shelter, not enough everything you need to survive in it. Yeah, it's, it's you know... Yes, we're going to do it. We're sorry. We're sorry, metaphorical gun. Please, everybody, visit patreon.com slash seriously wrong. We have bonus episodes on there. We have uh, the full archive of all of our past episodes on there. We have access to our Discord server and Facebook group on there. And we release episodes a day or a couple days early. So please, please, we're begging you to donate just $6 a month, that sweet six, to help us survive capitalism our assailant from off screen has signaled that he is willing to lower the gun with your help yeah for each donation he i forget the exact conversion but there's a certain degrees of like you know 90 degrees is one quarter of a circle uh if he lowers the gun a full 90 degrees that means we'll be <laughs> financially sufficient forever and uh you know so every there, there's a specific dollar amount that will change with inflation the number of degrees that he puts the gun down for each donation. <laughs> we'll try to get that conversion up at some point. Cool. Now that we got that out of the way, do you want to, let's just wash our hands quickly. <laughs> oh yeah. Get the stink off. That's a great yeah. idea. Yeah. Under a just society, we wouldn't have to learn how to do that. Yeah. We'd still have to wash our hands likely in a oh, yeah, unless no. there's like special gloves that wash them for, I don't know, but pandemic mitigation, but just also the prevention of everyday cold and flu. <laughs> 
But as far as metaphorically washing our hands after having to dirty ourselves by participating in this uh, marketplace. For for the record, I was talking about the shameless ask, not the washing of the hands. Oh, 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 I thought you were. Okay, I see what you're saying. In a just society, we wouldn't have to do the shameless ask. Right. The not having to wash your hands afterwards is just a consequence of that. So as we were saying before, uh, my name's Sean. This is Aaron. Yeah. This week, we're continuing our process of having a dialogue about library socialism, which is the one true ideology that can save and liberate humanity forever um, that we invented. And... Uh, no, but seriously, I mean, we the ideas that we put together on the show, we've taken to calling it library socialism. It's a collection of related ideas that have thematic, you know, sort of meta politics connecting them. And it's a thing that people ask us about the most on the show. And we thought it'd be really great to sort of start a dialogue with the audience. So we've got a contact form below where you can respond to specific things that we say in this episode, or also you can comment on YouTube. And we're trying to integrate more ideas over time through a dialogue uh, with the audience through our question and answer format. So we've done it once before, and this is our second time. Yeah. And one of the things we believe on the show is that people should think about what a better future would be like and imagine those worlds. And, you know, library socialism is our attempt to do that. We invite people to participate in thinking about it. And we also invite people to think up their own utopias and create their own visions for better societies yeah it's a it can be a jumping off point and uh, we don't expect people to somehow spiritually metaphysically i have become a library socialist and you salute the library socialist flag that's not really what we're aiming for here although it is appreciated (laughs) (laughs) it's the best thing we can think of not the flag part but the library use of fractian property relations where things are shared so we can have more things available to more people while actually producing less of it, building things to last longer and use fewer resources to get more results, to do more with less, as Buckminster Fuller said. But if somebody has better ideas on how to do those things, you know, we might egotistically cling to our own ideas forever hopefully not but maybe but uh there will be others to listen to them as well so we support that larger process even if we're surpassed within it under our current inherited system all institutions are made for some reason in the image of prisons mediated by markets that's the inherited world we have the planet is dying climate change is going to kill us all soon we propose something a little different which is instead of using prisons as the dominant institutional structure of society, we use libraries as the dominant structural institution of society. We call it library socialism. You're free to call it whatever you want. Just don't call it late for dinner, please. (laughs) Yeah, it would just be really inaccurate and confusing. Something like that can't be late for dinner. Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by the feeling of being surrounded by friends, eating good food, safe and warm. And you're like a little bit hungry and it's like right now it's like the moment 
where like maybe you've had like a little bit of bread, some water, you're talking, you feel good surrounded by your friends, but like now they're bringing down the plates and it's just like stacks of roast beast, stacks of potato salad, whatever you like, right? You got your lasagnas, your pizzas, it's a feast and you're hungry, like you've been waiting and like now you're surrounded by friends and, and you dig in, you're getting your first taste. That's what society should be like. That is the feeling that we're looking for. That's what it's like to go home. In a library socialist society, it's always that moment. It's always, you're just looking to your left, looking to your right, someone you love, someone you care about, and then in front of you, a big steaming plate slash bowl slash tray of the most delicious food you can imagine. And there's an abundance of it too. You can load up your plate with as much as you want. There's enough for all to enjoy. There's no worries about taking seconds, no concern that you're infringing on someone else's. There's plenty and it's all good. And you know that when it's done, the scraps are either gonna be composted, given to the pets, something they're gonna be used for something useful. So you don't even have to feel guilty about how much food is there. Yeah, food in a utopia will be cornucopian, an abundance of the most delicious, varied, accessible food you can imagine. That's the outcome, and we're sure of that. Some of the details of how that can be done in practice need to be workshopped over generations with the use of technology and social technologies, cultures, to determine the best way to make sure that happens. But the end game we're looking for is a society where there's that, that moment where a need is met, where hunger goes to feast. That moment to infinity. That's a library socialist vision of the future. Yeah, and that's the sponsor of the show this week. Well, without further ado, do you want to jump into some questions? Yeah, let's reach into our our big uh, sack full of folded papers where all the questions have been placed in and no ado for we were reaching into the ado sack earlier to get our ideas for riffs for for a doing but now that we've a done it's time for the sack the other sack (laughs) (laughs) so first question pulling out of the sack can you explain or explore more around how to librarify the sharing of non-reusable items like food That's an interesting idea. I mean, when you think of a library, um, something like a tool library makes intuitive sense. You take out a tool from the library, you bring it back to the library when you're done. When you borrow food from a library, you eat it. So you can't return it unless you're returning poo. And you wouldn't want to bring poo to wherever someone's getting food from. Yeah, if the entire system is a library, technically you are kind of returning poo in a sense. Like we would process poo or we would try to use what is useful in the poo in whatever ways we can uh, replug it back into the system in some useful way so in a sense you would be returned but it's not really the same thing as returning a book that you've taken out definitely not it's so interesting how i mean it makes sense poo is gross so you wouldn't want to talk about it at the table but poo is so intrinsically part of food that as soon as we started answering the food question we just went to poo because it's the most fundamental you know yeah well yeah i remember having my mind kind of blown as a child by learning that animal poo manure is a good fertilizer and just being like wait like food becomes poo but then you're saying that also one of the best ways to grow food is to use poo to grow it again and kind of that circularity there i I feel like it's uh 
they are intricately related. Circle of life. Uh, yeah. The Mufasa said shortly before his spoiler alert death, which made me cry in the original animated version. Yeah, yeah. I was about to say <laughs> not in the 2019 version. Uh, <laughs> something wrong with crying a little bit at a tragic sequence. That's what I always say. Yeah, I think even in uh, today's libraries, if you wanted to just look at the half of the system that is the taking out of food and like how to librarify that, I just also would point out that a lot of libraries offer services that you don't necessarily reuse. Like you can print stuff out at a library and you just take those pages with you and you don't necessarily return them in the same form. You might recycle them in the paper recycling thing, but libraries aren't only defined by like returning this singular item back again. If you take a class at a library, you don't really give the class back at the end. I mean, you might be able to sign up to teach other things or to help in the circularity in that way, but... Yeah, the room is returned to general use, but the class itself is retained by the user. Yeah. Similarly, the nutrients of the food would be retained by the user in a library socialist food system. But what would alternate hands potentially is the spaces in which food is produced. My understanding is that there's benefits to cycling the crops on fields to restore the soil. It stands to reason to me that in a utopian society, you wouldn't need to be running all factories all the time, making the same things over and over and over again, if things were actually made to last and be repaired. So you, factories would probably have a variety of things that they could produce. I think this is already the case for many factories. They have a variety of things they can produce, produce with the tools that they have. So again, factories where food is processed for one reason or another could also alternate between different hands, subgroups, and so on with the sense of you know, use and fruitfulness. Factories don't need to be owned by someone in order to produce things. Yeah. I think also another way that the logic of the library of doing more with less works within food is something we've talked about a lot on the show, which is the big pot of soup metaphor, which is the idea that you can make food production and distribution more efficient by de-individualizing it. And rather than having 15 people cook 15 small pots of soup and sort of wasting a lot of labor in the process and probably a lot of food in the process, if you have one person cook a giant pot of soup for 15 people, you've saved on all that resource throughput and you've gained something through those individuals pooling resources towards a common benefit. You know, with long lasting physical restorable items like shelves and whatnot, you gain a material benefit through the pooling of resources by not having people throw out shelves every time they redecorate and they need a different size shelf for the different part of their room but rather returning them to the library so they're used again, doing more with less. It doesn't work exactly the same in food production, but you can get those types of scale benefits by looking at the process of how it's made and distributed as well. Thinking of other non, non-returnable items, stuff like medicine. I think medicine in particular is a good example of how the sharing of information free access of all information to everyone to the highest degree possible. So library socialist principle could create sort of stacking benefits where so medicine isn't returned to the library at the end of its use, but having access to the entire history, the entire knowledge base of all medicine, to have non-competitive 
patents where people can pick up on each other's ideas and develop medicine based on free experimentation, that would benefit everyone. That is a library socialist thing as well. And the same goes for food production as well, as, as ways are found to increase crop yields by using less water or in more consistent ways and so on and so on. That type of information should be shared and not part of a competition within a marketplace. The, the, the food situation is, food and medicine are both too dire to leave to competition. Yeah, if you look at food from the perspective of one of the things library socialism aims to do is provide people with an irreducible minimum of what they need. And one of the ways that works is through lending library shared use of items. And uh, when you apply irreducible minimum to food and medicine and other consumables, you come to the conclusion that what we need to do is create enough food and medicine for what people need, using the fewest resources possible to get maximum effect. Also, it's worth saying that the question mentions the sharing of non-reusable items like food, but there, there's a lot of items in current society that are non-reusable uh, that should be reusable in general. like. There's really no need to be making a lot of like easily throwable, outable containers, plastic forks and straws and that type of thing. When you can have reusable alternatives that are easy to access at the places when you're going to need them. Yeah, the, the production of just like excess packaging and waste to be commissioned from raw materials so you can order a single submarine sandwich. And then have all that plastic and paper and everything all covered in mustard and mayonnaise crumpled up in a ball and thrown in a landfill somewhere. And you just do that every time anyone eats a submarine sandwich in your society. That's got to stop. It doesn't make sense. I mean, like the paper is maybe fine, depending on if we find a sustainable way to make paper. But yeah, all the plastic stuff generally isn't a great idea. Unless you can make the right kind of plastic that's decomposable, that can be inserted back into the system in a useful way again, but it really makes bite. no sense to throw out your plastic and your food into the same bin and then bring them all to the same place. Like food waste dirt. to the extent that it still And the exists. whole area is stinky. Sorry, go on. <laughs> yeah. And it's not stinky because of the old plastic. It's stinky because of the old food waste. The old food waste could be reused to grow more food again in an ideal society. Yeah. That stinky smell you smell by the dump is a misappropriated thing that could be delicious grapes and berries for you right now. But instead, it's a stinky wafting odor that enters your car as you drive on certain parts of the highway. Every little stinky sniff you get of the dump is a smell of a utopia unfulfilled. The other aspect of that is that every time you order takeout, the reason they give you plastic forks and knives to take with you is because if they gave you their metal knives and forks, they would have to keep buying more metal knives and forks, and those are expensive. Uh, in a library system, the knife and fork ownership could just be transferred over to you, and you're responsible for returning it or keeping it in your drawer and using it later. And, you know, that's there wouldn't be any financial incentive for to go food places to the extent or to the ways that we figure out how that's going to work or whatever to not give you reusable items because there's no loss to them. They're not paying for it. It's just their utensils that are part of the system that we use together. Now that we're breaking into the topic of food places, the next question that we got here from a listener is, can library socialism work to abolish restaurants? 
So food places, this place where the the plastic forks come from. Yeah. The criticism of restaurants, the abolish restaurants critique, basically, for people who aren't familiar, is that they're environments that are steeped in this sort of logic of servitude and servants. The people who work in the kitchen and the front end typically are exploited. These are low-wage jobs that are really high stress, where often women will face sexual harassment, where the owners make a lot of money and the people on the front lines tend to make very little money. And it's pretensed entirely on this idea of having servants bring food away from you and you decide whether they're good or not and give them a tip determining their wage based on whether or not they were subservient enough for you. So that's kind of like the broad critique of restaurants and why someone might call for their abolition. Although I know for many people, they hear abolish restaurants and their monocle pops off. Uh, it's a it's not a real full price monocle. It's like a cheapo imitating kind of version. <laughs> Their monocle pops off because it is really pleasant to go in a place and have someone cook for you that you don't have to worry about all the labor of planning meals and so on. And I get that. I, I like restaurants too. I especially like diners, greasy diners. That's really my my favorite kind of restaurant to like hang out in. When the food is like, it's not good, but it's not bad enough to keep you away yeah i understand where the abolished restaurant thing is coming from i even agree with it to a large extent i probably wouldn't frame it that way because i too also like restaurants but i feel like the revolutionary restaurant would be a very different place it's more of a community kitchen where people who want to make that type of engagement in society their contribution to society of making food potentially even bringing food out to people i think there's room for that in a non-coercive way if that's how you want to serve others in your society by literally serving them food sometimes you get to have conversations it wouldn't be the type of thing where you're forced to work long hours for low pay or try and get tips from people and whatnot i think i probably would say abolish restaurants but you know i know that i'm it's all just whether you call them restaurants or not. Yeah. Probably, you know, let's just abolish everything. You know, we'll get rid of restaurants. We'll just have <laughs> blessed-strants instead because they're blessed. <laughs> yeah, I think food places will continue to exist in some form or should ideally exist in a utopian society. We're a, we're a communal species. I think that's not just a prescriptive suggestion for humanity. It's sort of a descriptive one of who we are throughout history and where we come from. We we eat together is something that we've always done, I think, probably forever since we were, you know, humanoid, semi-human yeah. things. Communal eating is better on resources and it's better socially. Not that I think communal eating should necessarily be enforced. I also think it's good to have interlocking separated systems. And if you prefer to make food using raw ingredients more frequently in your home, I think that should be available as well. But as for the brick and mortar restaurants of the current day, should they be demolished? Should we drive a killdozer over the remaining restaurants, leaving nothing but rubble in its wake? I think probably not. I think we should have a sense of creative reinterpretation. Uh, what can we do with these spaces where food can be produced? Community kitchens is one possible framing to describe what that would look like. But you could imagine a system where different kitchens are borrowed for different purposes at different times and there's kitchens in every neighborhood and basically serving the role that restaurants currently provide in our society except get even more convenient because it's free and you pay with your library card and not your credit card that seems like a beautiful utopian dream to me 
But you know, I, I, I I'm sympathetic also to like the bossing around the people who <laughs> who work there and stuff. Like, I think you got to get rid of that. I'm sympathetic to the critique of that. Right, right, right. right. Okay, good. <laughs> You're saying. That. <laughs> am I sympathetic? I'm sympathetic to doing it. I kind of. You know, let's just let's look inward for a second. We're we're all people of the earth. We're not. <laughs> We're not angelic gods here to reign above it all. There is something satisfying about asking for orange juice and then getting it, getting to continue your conversation. Honestly, in restaurants, I feel like asking for orange juice and getting it is about on par with being able to just walk up and fill my cup from the orange juice dispenser. Um, right. Those are about equal experiences to me. I think I'd rather have the autonomy one if possible. I like because there's that weird Something thing like you're like trying bank. to catch their attention, but they have all these other tables, yeah. but like you can't just go get your own orange juice or even the places where you can, it's often limited, like no refills or only one refill. I'm thinking like fast food places with like cola dispensers. You like, <laughs> technically you could just go fill your cup as much as you want, but you're not allowed to in most of them. Yeah. In our utopia, you would be allowed to yeah, unlimited pop. Unlimited <laughs> refills on everything. <laughs> <laughs> with the understanding that you only need to produce so much food and there's there actually is a limit because people's stomachs they can only contain a physically limited amount of soda at a time that's true yeah and you can get you could get badly sick from drinking too much soda and i think yeah, our utopia limit. would yeah. take great care to make sure that people were aware of that sort of thing before letting them loose on the unlimited soda machines um <laughs> there's also unlimited health water machines or whatever you know absolutely like delicious health water yeah there's this new type of water in the future not yet invented it's called health water and it's fucking crazy how healthy it is it's healthy in ways that we don't even understand yet tastes good too flavored health water no no difference between unflavored and flavored health water in terms of health effects that's the type of utopia we're talking about building here we now go to a utopian library socialist society where one man's disturbing behavior has led to a wellness check. Uh, hello? Hey, uh, my name is Devin. I'm a social health worker from the Yusufruktian uh, Chalif Department. Not a big deal, I'm just here to chat, check in, see if there's any resources you need. Uh, um, okay, yeah, sure. It was a community-directed response, so. Why, well, yeah, why don't you come in? I don't really understand. I feel like I'm doing great. I don't know why people would think I need a wellness check-in, but you know, sure. Oh yeah, no, it's a wellness check in the softest touch way possible, just regular, nothing weird. Okay. Um, that's what we Have I disturbed anyone or done yes. anything? Kind of, I kind of stay at home by myself a lot. I'm a bit of an introvert and it's not. It's you nothing have... about hateful or... No, no, totally get it. And yeah, so some people have been disturbed by you hmm. and it's totally cool. Misunderstandings happen all the time. This is such a small thing. Like this is just chatting, okay, just to make sure yeah. that you're doing good. And I that might sort of get stuff. up and uh, run to the kitchen a few times during this conversation. Uh, if you smell something cooking, that's my dinner. Though unfortunately, I can't offer you any. I've made just one meal for myself. There's no extra there. So right, yeah. I can offer you water, but that's that's it. Uh, why? Yeah. Why? Why? Why'd you? In general, most people will just make some extra and then they'll share it. That's sort of a norm. Right. Uh, it's not mandatory, of course, and no judgment. I accept that. I'm not hungry, anyways. But why? Why not? Why? Why don't you have extras to share with guests, as per is like the custom? Uh, 
Uh, you know, I don't have a lot of guests, first of all. And when do guests do come, they're kind of used to it by now. They know me. The biggest thing is I get a kind of uh, perfectionist thrill out of cooking one exact meal with exactly the amount of calories I want for me. If I have extra left over, honestly, I'm a bit of a, I'll just nibble on it all day and I'll keep eating. I enjoy cooking, so I like cooking every meal myself, for myself, with no leftover, perfectly square. It's So yeah, this is a regular thing, so usually... Yeah, it's one of my joys in life. One to of your joys in life this. is to cook one meal at a time, exactly portioned for just you with no leftovers, yep. not to share. Exactly. Interesting. I always um, measure my foods exactly, you know, there's no sprinkle of salt. It's like, no, an eighth of a teaspoon. I know exactly what's going in there. One tablespoon of oil, perfectly measured. That's so interesting. That's so unlike most people in our society. Yeah, it's, uh, it's like a there's bit we, different, but you know. We have the public food depots, cafeterias, delicious food, all kinds. And people, if they love to cook, typically they'll want to cook for others as well. And Yeah, and it's not that I hate others or if they, you know, if someone wants to come over and share a meal, bring their own meal to eat with me and then take if they have leftovers take them out uh that's fine but i just like clean and squared off and just i know what i'm eating and i know how much of it i'm eating and i've just made it just for me it's uh kind of a self-contained loop i really enjoy that about my life so it's a personality quirk yeah exactly okay perfect just personality quirk perfect okay this is this is great um yeah so we had a few of your neighbors were disturbed i guess they'd been invited over for a visit and they weren't offered a plate right um and that's, oh so this was what you that were was actually to... about yeah so we oh, got to it kind of naturally i was, I was just to... bringing it up because it was what was currently happening for me i'm cooking this meal well it's one of the skills of this job is to find ways to bring Huh. the conversation out in a non-confrontational way because frankly what I mean what I'm checking for and no offense you're not in this category is a spree killer wow yeah I thought we were still in the preamble but you're saying we've already we've had completed the, the evaluation yeah. wow that's you're, finesse that's well, for, you're, you're good at your job well thank you it's, it's something I love to do you know I love to keep people safe um and but really spree killing yeah, you know, um cooking a single meal for yourself at a time by yourself is Statistically, now it's not every not every case, but it's statistically more likely to be a spree killer who does that. Um, huh. So it's not it's even out of everyone who does it. Ninety nine out of a hundred aren't spree killers. Right. But if we just look at those people, we find spree killers like crazy. Huh. I just, I it's never a great would... subcategory to do these wellness checks. Right. Yeah, I never would have thought overlap with spree killers. Well, that's what the data the says. Then, yeah. yeah, I guess that's true. Uh, but yeah, no, I have no desire. I, um, you know, I want to limit interactions with other people a lot of the time. So going out and spree killing, that's like a whole thing. Like, what if they don't like me? What if the, you know, it just kind of, I'd get way too up in my head to do something like that. Yeah. Spree killing, not a people pleasers game, not, yeah, a, exactly. not an introvert's game. Right. Uh, so, okay, here's my card. If you ever do feel like spree killing and not an accusation, call me. Sure. It's also normal to feel like spree killing, I should say, and there's no there's no penalty or anything. We'll just we'll just talk it over and stuff. Um, and yeah, if you need resources, connection to anything, if you want to have opportunities to be pushed out of your social bubble or like you know uh, introvert group settings, you know, there's a bunch of resources I could bring you through, but. I don't want to waste your time right now, but if you're interested in something, oh, I want to try parasailing, or you know, I want to go to an arcade day and like 
with someone else, that sort of thing. We try to help make those connections happen. Um, um, too. Yeah, maybe leave some pamphlets so I can look them over after my meal. For sure, yeah. Do you want like a whole whack load or like a sort of just maybe uh, my two favorite? Yeah, go with the two favorite. I don't know. If, I don't yeah, know I don't want to overload you, but if you are the type that would be interested. Anyways, here, two. These are t- two great, great programs. Um, they're social, but they also have um, opportunities for introversion and setting your own boundaries. So uh, it's good if you feel like getting out more, sharing meals, that sort of stuff, and no pressure. Um, we also have programs that are, are directed specifically at being alone by yourself as well. Yeah, maybe, maybe get out a little more. I really don't know about sharing. Probably not with the sharing meals, but... No pressure. Hey, we value personality quirks in our society. Great. Yeah, okay. Well, if that's all, um, I got the kind of finishing touches to put on this meal. So if you're done, uh, I don't yep. want to be rude, but... No, for sure. Set that boundary. I'm out. All right. And Great. I just want to say there's no normative pressure to be more social or anything like that. And I don't want to give that impression. We just often find in practice that there are people who are not reaching the full levels of socialization that they want. Uh, and when they're connected with those opportunities, they take them and they, they're happy they did. But um, that it might also not apply to you. But just to give you an idea where I'm coming. Anyways, sure. I'll get out of your hair. I know I'm holding you hostage here, so I'll. Uh, All right. Yeah. But bye. I can be a blabbermouth. So I'll just uh, close the door okay, further. Uh, Continue closing okay, the door. Actually, I'll give you this third pamphlet. Um, okay, yeah, sure. Just this slip one's it just that all last remaining crack hard in introvert the door. stuff. Hard introvert stuff. Okay. Goodbye and shut. Good kid. And that was a Utopian Library Socialist Society wellness check. And now back to our show. Next question. What would food production and community kitchens look like using library socialism? Well, that's perfect. That's almost exactly what we're just starting to talk about here. Food production is an interesting question. I mean, the sharing of farmlands could be coordinated on a large scale guided by expertise but with the same time you know agency and freedom within it to decide you know what sort of crop priorities are happening on a systemic city and a bioregional level that it makes there be some degree of direct democracy but also i think specialist democracy of farmers work in that sort of process that questioner went on to ask could grocery stores be removed using a framework of library socialism and help eliminate food deserts. And I think uh, when I was thinking about the grocery store form, I think there is something kind of inherently wasteful about it where you're just like putting all this food out on display and hoping enough people take it before it goes bad. But like we like grocery stores, you know, we nitpick ourselves for like, oh, some stuff we had in our fridge went bad. But when I worked at a grocery store, the amount of food waste that the grocery store produces compared to what we produce in our homes by ourselves is like the difference is vast. Uh, and there's like rules where you have to throw out any food that has slightly like dented packaging, you know, just tossing this whole thing of yogurt in there because one of the cups broke open. No one's going to buy it. So just toss the whole thing out. The yogurt's all bad. But it's like, no, that yogurt is not all bad. It's still good. There's just one cup burst. Uh, that kind of shit happens all the time. And it's a huge food waste. Uh, so that aspect of grocery stores, I think, definitely needs to be eliminated. And I'm not sure the best form for it. But I do think that 
In terms of getting raw ingredients to yourself or like prepackaged foods, one thing I thought of was that like a sort of more centralized order system uh, where things are maybe not delivered to your door, but maybe you are able to choose food for the week or something that you pick up at a neighborhood depot where you can get all the things you need every week in terms of raw ingredients and whatnot, but like what gets sent to the depot is just exactly what the neighborhood needs, what it orders. You're not adding all this extra stuff to it. Uh, and if one of the cups is burst open on your yogurt thing, you know, you can maybe get a bit extra next time or something, but like it's probably, you probably just have to wipe it off and uh, continue to use it. Yeah, I think th there's some. Thinking in that spirit of creative reinterpretation and what aspects should be kept of something like the grocery store, I'm not sure it's necessary to have a big depot of all food in general out on display, although there's something kind of beautiful and cool about a cornucopia of food. I don't know if... There might be something useful in the centralization aspect too, like having it all in one place. Like, Have, have you ever been to a grocery store on acid or shrooms or something like that? Uh, but it's like, holy shit, there's every food from all over the world has been brought here and placed out in front of me. There, there is something beautiful there that, but I'm not sure if it's actually necessary. Yeah. And like you're saying, local community sort of food depots could basically serve the role of a grocery store. I'm not sure if I'd want it with how much surgical precision you want versus how much say like commute overflow to have that freedom and whim. There is something nice about having that sort of freedom and whim looking at different food options and being like, oh, I'm going to take uh, these types of potatoes. I'm right, right. Yeah, I guess I was imagining that being able to happen in the ordering stage, but it's not the same to like, yeah, like look an at online shopping cart. Yeah, it's not. There is something missing from there. There's like the the bazaar, you know, yeah, I mean, the other possible thing is to have grocery store like things where the food waste is just much better managed and like, yeah. okay, one of these yogurt things burst open. Let's take all the rest of this yogurt out and use it in baking one of our frozen or make it frozen yogurt thing. You know, whatever you do it like it, we just use it instead of not using it. <laughs> yeah, like the, the absolute food reuse of last resort could be, um, you know, into composting and stuff like that. But I could imagine different systems to say your grocery depot has an abundance of food at a time, you know, like a regional thing. So then they make the food available for community kitchens to try to utilize all the food, have there be kind of like a sense of community and duty related to using all the food in the metaphorical community fridge. You know, it's an, an unimaginably large fridge <laughs> a couple miles away where the entire food stores of the community are kept like an Amazon warehouse, um, except Amazon doesn't exist um, and there's no money and uh, you can have unlimited refills anytime you want. I could imagine like, a, oh, we're having cabbage soup tonight because we have too much cabbage. And it's like people would still have the freedom. There's still different community kitchens around different places. Food is made available. But there's like a sense of participation and community to, you know, eat the stinky vegetables all together at once in the spirit of a lack of waste. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also you mentioned part of like when you mentioned the grocery store experience of like, whoa, like having all these foods from all over the world brought here to me. In one sense, there's a real beauty to that. And if we achieve transportation that's extremely low energy, high efficiency that can ship things around the world sustainably, I think that's what well, would be a wonderful thing to have in society. But also, I think it's worth like thinking about prioritizing food that is produced locally 
and maybe not having everything from around the world available to you all the time. Because, you know, like, I feel like regionality and diversity and difference of culture according to regionality and what is locally available is something that uh, adds to the value and the differences in society and, uh, you know, kind of depending on where the energy and transportation systems are at. I think you'd have more or less of an availability of everything all over the year. Maybe you can only get certain things. You can get as much corn as you want if corn is grown locally, but you can only get so many avocados if they're grown for far away from where you live. Like there, you know, you can have systems like that uh, potentially put into place to meet people's food needs efficiently and sustainably where they are. Yeah, this is a tough thing to talk about because in a utopia, you never want to be saying there's going to be less of something. You always want more beautiful abundance in every way. But we're working within the functions of a hard system. And the the energy use and the externalities of energy use in the system need to be sort of a first priority. If putting pineapples in every corner of the world is working against our core aim of having a world that isn't destroyed, then having a world that isn't destroyed has to come first. But that being said, I think there probably would always be room for there to be some degree of, you know, pineapples and non-pineapple environments. How that is distributed and what fair way to make sure that, you know, need is centered, uh, fairness is centered, whether that's, there could be a pineapple lottery or something or who knows. But I, I want to sort of brainstorm and tease out here, how can we make this scenario more utopian? Because I think it is probably true that like large scale global food shipping the way that we know it is not a necessary base condition of a successful society. And that there is something beautiful about traveling to a foreign land and tasting their fruit. That's something that I've never got to experience. Yeah. I don't think it, like, it seems dystopian in a way to say that fewer things will be, you know, abundantly available to you all the time. But there is that benefit in, like, you know, if you can only get pineapples at a certain time of year or only so many pineapples per year, I feel like they'll be even sweeter. And like you should have some kind of sweet fruit available, you know, whatever grows nearest you. And there's also things we talk about in this in terms of what can be grown easily hydroponically anywhere in the world. And like, I think there's technological advancements that could make various types of food able to be grown anywhere in the world in energy efficient manners. I don't think that technology is completely ludicrous to imagine or anything. We may right. not and have it perfected yet, but um, low energy shipping and this type of hydroponics are both real possibilities. Yeah. And if, if basic needs are being met and there's a, you know a high degree of food sovereignty in each corner of the bioregion, I would say it's a high priority to ensure that the luxuries of life, including faraway fruits, are made available through technological means. Um, I mean, what's the phrase? Not only bread, but roses as well. You know, life isn't just about eating local apples for nutritional value day after day. It's also about tasting the, the wild pineapples of abroad. <laughs> But it should be a rare and beautiful treat and until technology allows it to be permanently accessible everywhere. Like, what are they called in Star Trek where just food comes out of... The replicators. Replicators, yeah. It's like pure pattern. They just create a pineapple pattern. Yeah, you just rum. use any matter and you rearrange the parts of the matter to be the thing you want on a molecular atomic level. 
Yeah, when we get that, obviously, then unlimited pineapples for everyone all the time. Yeah, and uh, they're but, the best pineapples ever. Like, But you could also, as a transporter, you could just hop over to Pineapple Town, too. Maybe people are going to debate it out in the great Congress of Humanity about whether or not fruits should be made universal, or if there's something more special about instantly transporting yourself to a faraway land to get them. Yeah, even if it's not instant, there might be it might be worth it to, if you want to eat pineapples all the time to go live where the pineapples are grown. You know, if you think of the cost of shipping a pineapple every week to you across the world versus the cost of shipping you across the world once, cost in terms of energy here, not money. Yeah, it's going to be less on an average basis for you to just live where the pineapples are, if that's (laughs) what you love. But, you know, these are just various possibilities. We now go to the Utopian Library Socialist Society General Complaints Department. Hey, I'm having a big issue with the special fruit delivery program. It is like really pissing me off. Uh, I want this fixed. Okay, okay, here. So you have a complaint. Let me just enter this in the form. Special fruit delivery project complaint. And uh, all right, what is your complaint? So now I love this rare type of pineapple, right? And I've got it signed up as my favorite fruit. Right, right. So I'm entitled to three to six fresh pineapples per year. My favorite fruit's papaya. Um, sorry, that's neither here nor there. I get, I love my extra papayas every year. Right. So you understand where I'm coming from, even in different ways. Right. Well, how would you feel if you weren't getting your full papayas worth? Oh, so you're saying you're not getting your extra pineapples. All right, I'm only just... getting two a year. It's now, now this is year four of only getting two a year. I'm entitled with my favorite fruit up to five or even six, depending on supply. Right. Let me just enter that in Do here. Do you understand how much this pisses me off? I'm seeing here there actually has been a global shortage of pineapples for the last, yeah, four years. Yeah, you're right. So I'm just getting the same as everyone else. Everyone gets two pineapples now, even people that's their favorites. Yeah, I've been getting two pineapples a year, actually. We made pineapple salsa four months ago. You can buy that. It's just not the same as making your own at home. It's really the only thing they're good for. So what are my options? Have you considered canned pineapple? That's available in larger quantities. Uh, yeah, no, I, it's Dried fine. pineapple? Please. Frozen? I have plenty of that, and it gets me through some tough days. But I need it fresh. I'm entitled to fresh. Have you considered informally asking your friends and family if they would share their pineapples with you? I can't. I can't ask him. Not after last summer. Uh, oh, what happened last summer? Do you want to include last summer in the complaint? or well, I don't know. Is there like a special hardship pineapple for people who made their whole family and all their friends mad at them? Uh, let me just double check. Uh, no, no hardship fruits. Is there some sort of special exception you can make? Is there some sort of backdoor programs? We're supposed to be in a utopia. I mean, he's got to get met, right? You want me to yeah. fake having a limp? Um, no, having a limp won't get you around uh, supply chain limitations. Have you ever considered moving to where the pineapples are? Move? (laughs) Look, I got a family here. I got a job here. I got friends here. I grew up here. You know, I love pineapples, but I can't uproot myself out of my community just to go have more. Sure, I could move to a pineapple grove and I could feast on pineapples all day, every day. But that's your job. The whole society is supposed to bring me pineapples. It's failing. 
I'm just Googling pineapples here. Did you know there's over 31 different varieties of pineapples? That's amazing. I had no idea. I thought there was just one. Yeah, I know all about it. It's my number one food. Oh, and it looks like you can grow pineapples yourself at home? What, have you ever tried that? You just cut the top off, and uh, it says you'd have to let it grow to three meters deep and three meters tall, three meters wide in order to get full-size pineapples. I don't know if you have that much room in your living space, but you could grow tiny pineapples, it seems like, potentially. I want full-size, fresh, imported pineapples. Is there some sort of like black market where I can trade privileges of mine for other people's pineapples that they're less passionate about? Well, I would be against the regulations for me to tell you that such a thing exists, so I can't do that. But what I will say is that the regulation that I'm citing here exists for a reason. So there is. Well, I can't tell you that. Well, what happens if I do it? Uh, let me just look that up. Uh, it says here if nobody's hurt... And if environmental sustainability isn't hurt, then it's really likely nothing will happen. But if it is decided that you've uh, caused some sort of issue, there could be graduated sanctions over time. You could lose your ability to set a favorite fruit at all, although that's very unlikely. All right. How can I participate politically to change some of these some of these specific rules? They don't. Oh, no, I want to advocate for their change. That is something I can help you with. If you fill out this form here and take it to your local neighborhood council, you can uh, propose amendments to the relevant regulations. And if they're ratified at the local neighborhood level, uh, you can send those on up the uh, confederated system and hopefully have them implemented regionally, uh, at which time it would become an official policy. It's a long process. It could take five to seven years, unless it's expedited, which would be an extra form. It'd be this form here you'd fill out. And if you need help filling out these forms, there is an accessibility office that can help you with that if you're not a form guy. I don't know how much you do or don't like forms. This is my amendment. When you like pineapples as much as I do, when you like them like a real lot, then other people should just get one pineapples, and I, I should get ten or fifteen, even. Or, and and this is too stifled. This is too stifled for a utopia. It should be. Should be. It, I should get more pineapples. This is pissing me off. Just you put this complaint in the system. Oh, absolutely, yeah. You put that right in there. Is the complaint uh, fully formed? Is there, Can I help you? Anything else you want to add? Any addendums before I send this off? Yeah, I would file maybe another complaint, maybe linked, overlapping. Sure. Um, that our society needs to value the agency and passion of citizens more because of my organic love for pineapples. It makes no sense that you would get only the people who care about pineapples would be hurt by a shortage. Have you tried papayas? There's been a papaya surplus the last four years. So for people who love papayas, we've actually gotten not just five to seven, but nine to ten every year. Oh, good for you. And would you like an agent to follow up with you about this complaint with the response of the system? Uh, yes, please. Yes. Um, all right, I'll just check that box. All right, well, I'm pissed off at all this. All right, I'll just check the box Thanks for, for all the forms is, to fill out. is pissed off. Yeah, hit that. Great. Yeah, well, um, sorry that this is happening to you. If you need any emotional soothing, there is an emotional soothing station downstairs. 
All right, thanks. No, I'm just, I'm going to print off a bunch of posters with my face saying, please give me a gift of pineapple. And eventually, like someone's got to give me a gift of pineapple, right? Eventually, if I just put it out there and ask for it. It's not up to some guy in an office to fix all my problems for me. Yeah, well, we don't fix problems here. We just uh, log complaints. Does anyone in line have an extra pineapple for me? Does anyone hear my story? No? It's fine. I don't expect it. I just thought I'd check. And that was the Utopian Library Socialist Society Complaints Department. Now back to the show. But yeah, I think it'll probably generally be possible to grow pineapples or to grow whatever fruits we need wherever we want to grow them. If not in the immediate future, then in the coming future with like hydroponic food towers and whatnot. But also like going back to food production on like the bigger question there, I think there's a lot of things we can do to incorporate food production into our cities better. Like, I really like the idea, the basic idea a lot of people have had of not having lawns and replacing that with gardens, having more gardens be a normal part of cities. I really like how in Vancouver, there's a lot of blackberry bushes around where you can just kind of go and it's sort of free to the public to take blackberries from them. I don't know if there's a lot, but there's one near my house uh, and there's one near the place where I used to work. Where I would just be able to like fill up a whole bunch of Tupperware boxes with blackberries a few times a year is really nice. I think having more fruit planted around cities is a good thing in general. And I think there's a lot of things people can grow in their home or around their home. Having more sort of integrated food production into people's everyday lives and like skill sharing things on how to do that, I think is a good piece of the food production puzzle. Yeah, there's this local group in Vancouver, they're called City Beat Farm, and they're run through money and subscriptions and stuff. But they're doing something really interesting, which is like, they're having like a team of gardeners garden a bunch of different people's lawns at once. So like people basically give them the right to use their lawn to grow food. And then they participate in a food sharing system through that. Nice. And people can subscribe to get the food. I thought it was a really cool and interesting model for like using all of the land that's around us that can be turned into food. (laughs) But then also, I want to say on food too, I think that there is some benefits to having large scale food operations. Like in in a utopia, it wouldn't necessarily be that everyone's like growing food all the time. And it's like a normative good that everyone has their hands dirty. And because we have the technological and social potential to grow huge amounts of food on behalf of large amounts of people without them participating also. And there's room for both in a utopian society in different contexts. Yeah, definitely. I think people get down on mass food production because of the ecological impacts of the way like monoculture and stuff is currently practiced on like topsoil depletion and chemical fertilizers and things that don't always have the best impacts on the surrounding environments. But I think a lot of those things are technical problems that can be solved through implementing different versions of these things that may not be the most profit efficient under a capitalist system, but are 
more ecologically sustainable and efficient in the long term, but still allow for that kind of like mass food production. Because I think, yeah, there is a real benefit to scale. We were talking about the big pot of soup metaphor before, but like the same thing applies to food production where like having massive farms where you grow tons and tons of wheat all at the same time there's a scale benefit to that. I, I think like community gardens and things like that are part of a solution and a part of a way of creating an abundance of food around. But I don't think, I mean, cities can't grow all their food inside of themselves and still be like, it just doesn't work unless there's like massive advances in like hydroponic food tower technology uh, in general, like you need farmland uh, and like mass food production. Yeah, in fully automated luxury communism, they talk about the potential of like brewing meat the way that you brew kombucha or beer, like having big tanks that like through a mixture of a genetic process and like a meat sample with energy and like sugar and a combination of factors will just like fill itself. Potentially, there's like startups that are. Yeah, it's like the lab grown meat thing where you, yeah, you just grow like a huge vat of something similar to cow muscle but it's not coming from cows or whatever <laughs> yeah yeah it's making it made me laugh because it's so grotesque and it's actually i don't this is it's a weird thing to bring up i had a nightmare last night about i was on like it was like in a factory farm and i was like seeing all these animals like screaming in pain and being uh castrated <laughs> Uh, I'm laughing because I'm, I'm uncomfortable, but I woke up like genuinely feeling disturbed and feeling grossed out <laughs> by meat production. So when you just started talking about growing big vats of meat, brewing it, I was like, oh, hell yeah. I well, love yeah, that. Yeah, that's, that's kind of what I was thinking when I read it. It's like, it's, if that's it's possible, I'm, I'm into yeah. it. Yeah. But then when I started describing and just thinking about this like keg full of like <laughs> beef, <laughs> Or uh, I think one of the, uh, apparently doing fish or uh, chicken is easier than beef. Sure. Love that. But yeah. I mean, it, maybe there is a future where we could have the, the technological and energy base to produce food in fascinatingly efficient and maybe even bizarre ways. I don't want to close the door to that. But yeah, in general, I do like, I do like urban food stuff. I've always, I had this sort of utopian thought for a long time it's it's sort of an aesthetic that helps me imagine a utopian future are food towers towers that generate food through and you're always like seeing stuff on the internet of like new revolutionary ways of growing food in different contexts or like they can increase yields this way and those kind of ideas percolating in my head, I just have this sort of vision of the decommodified urban food tower. It, it feels like these, you know, the emeralds of the city skyline of the utopian future. They're, they're functional. They do something really important, which is that they provide decommodified food. I think there's a potential for like a radical policy change that could be enforced by governments as a transitionary measure, as something that could help us move from an unecological society to an ecological society, urban food centers that are well-funded to produce food classified as decommodified, meaning that it's outside of the marketplace. It can't be sold. It can only be given and distributed based on need. I feel like it's the kind of thing that 
actually could exist without restructuring the entirety of society. And then it's something that could persist and continue its operations between the transitioning. (laughs) We could start it now and it could be an old institution in the futuristic utopian library socialist society someday. Like, oh, these old decommodified urban food towers. Like the libraries, a step from one world towards the next. Right. Yeah. But honestly, for me, it's a little bit of an aesthetic thing. I don't know all the details of what goes into building towers, the energy costs, the return on the food, all these sort of important questions that you you really want to figure out if you're going to pursue it seriously. Yeah, I think there's something potentially beneficial about being able to stack growing food on top of itself in a tower form rather than just the spread of traditional farming. And I think it's possible with like aquaponics and lighting and whatnot, but I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah, the energy, it's all going to depend on what's the most energy efficient and the most ecologically complementary way to produce food in our society where we can design these systems so that we're not depleting the soil or burning through the planet's resources at a rate that can't be replenished. Right. Yeah. While still providing an abundance for everyone to the highest degree possible, the highest standard of living possible through the sort of principles of like sharing and fairness. And now we go to a training shift at a decommodified urban food tower in a library socialist society. New guy, good to see you. Come over here. Hey, yeah. This is neat. I've never been inside one of these before. You know, they always stand out in the skyline. Beautiful, giant food towers. But yeah, uh, yeah it's high tech. It's cool in here. Glad I decided to volunteer some time. Oh, yeah. I love it, man. I'm Honestly, I'm here every day. So a little bit about this facility. This was um, actually one of the first food towers of this size in our region ever built. This was actually built under capitalism as a state finance project, as a sort of transitionary measure that was, um, the political history of it was basically it's like a grassroots movement push that was eventually conceded by power to build something. At, oh, wow. Yeah, a I food knew, tower I, that was decommodified. That was a big deal at the time because everything was commodified then. I knew it was uh, one of the oldest buildings in the city, but yeah, I didn't know uh, it was built under capitalism. That's uh, That's ancient history by now. Well, yeah, that's why we call it a decommodified urban food tower as that was the title of it from then right because I mean, everything's decommodified now but right but we don't call everything a decommodified this is a decommodified post office this is a decommodified no it's just, right right everything's like that but yeah this was a big deal at the time so it's a little bit of history here to work here and we basically do things more or less the same way i mean some improvements as we've been doing it all along this this facility is built in a very specific way to grow huge amounts of food and the fastest amount possible and here just come with me down this corridor i just i love it it's high tech like you said but it's also got this sort of like jungle vibe of like it's almost like being in green space yeah there's something comforting about being around so many uh plants you know i love it and um you know i love food i love technology it's all coming together under one roof here as far as i'm concerned i really like to hear that you know i give a lot of people this tour a lot of people do a shift they take a shift and they volunteer and Maybe they come out once or twice, and that's great. That's awesome. Uh, some people really love it. Like, I was just someone who, first time I was here, I was like, I'm coming back tomorrow. And then I just came back pretty much every day since. Um, and I don't really do other, 
you know, there's lots of things you can do to use your time to participate, but this fit for me. Yeah, I'm, uh, you know, I don't want to predict the future, but I see myself kind of somewhere in between those. Probably more than once or twice, uh, but probably not every day. Well, keep your options open, man. You're young, you know, there's plenty of, like... We'll see, you yeah. You could be we'll, anything. We'll you see You could try anything. You just switch back and forth, too. We'll always be here. Once you got the training, you can just hop in. So, do we actually pick the fruit and the plants by hand here? Is that... I understand there's some that are more automated and some that are less, but if this is a really old food tower, maybe... Oh, there's definitely picking by hand when we're picking. Yeah, and picking by by knife and by hand sometimes takes a bit of time, but, you know, we, uh, it, it only takes a few people. Like, we can... Pick a lot, yeah. Yeah, we can get a lot done, and it's, it's kind of fun. Today, actually, we're going to be picking pineapples. There was a bill that passed through community assemblies and went up and down uh, through the city-state until... Basically, it was ratified that because of the ongoing pineapple shortage, I guess there were some hurt feelings about it, people feeling like society wasn't working for them and so they reallocated some space in the tower that was previously being spent on some other rare fruits to to fill in for missing pineapples to make sure that pineapple fans can get the amount of pineapples they really want right right yeah no i heard about that that there was such a pineapple shortage i uh didn't really affect me i'm more of a canned pineapple guy myself uh i'm a big kiwi fruit fan that was always my designated favorite fruit Oh, that's good. No, we should. We should, I'll grab you one. Um, oh, a fresh, this. a fresh extra kiwi. Yeah, yeah. No, don't mind if I do. On lunch, yeah, we'll grab it. So yeah, just down this corridor here, you can see. Look at those pineapples hanging all in a row. Ooh, those are those are beautiful. Uh, are they? They they seem kind of pokey. Do we get like gloves to uh, pick them? I I don't want to hurt oh, no, my no, hands. We don't, we don't have any gloves. I just yeah, I'm just kidding here. <laughs> Oh, yeah, you had me there for a second. I was like, oh, yeah, this is supposed to be a utopia. There's, I got to scratch my hands on gloves, no, on we, the pokey pineapples. We got gloves. Don't worry. You're in good hands. Your hands are in good hands. So, listen, so here, let me show you. This is where you want to hack it off at the stock, and you can just drop it into this basket here, this wheelie basket. And um, I find it just easiest to start in the corner of the room and just follow the track. Right, right. Uh, there's a good 400, 500 pineapples here. You, You'll be going for a while. It might not be done by the end of the shift, but I should just give it a try. Uh, I'd, I'd take that as a challenge. Uh, I'll see if I'll get them all done. Cool. Well, I'll check in on you in a little bit. I'm just I'm gonna go check some. Um, there's things happening on more than one floor here. So right. Well, yeah. No, that's kind of cool. It's just you hack the pineapple, put it in the bin. That's uh, something nice about it. Something simple. And every single one of these pineapples is gonna go to an enthusiastic pineapple fan who signed a petition. They need to know that this society is working for them. Yeah, they deserve it, you know? That was a big political push. And democracy should be responsive to the needs of the people within it. So as far as I'm concerned, this fruit here is the fruit of a democratic society in more ways than one. That's beautiful. Okay, well, hey, kid, I'm going to bring you some kiwi fruit. Just get started. Um, I'll be back in a bit. Sounds good. Sounds good. Thanks for showing me around. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to you later. And that was a new guy on his first training shift at the decommodified urban food tower in a library socialist society.
Here's another question. This actually came from the comment section of the video that we did with Andrewism. They say, it's easy for me to see how a communal managed library economy would work with durable goods like tools, furniture, toys, and pieces of art. But what about goods where the use inherently involves its destruction? Setting aside examples like food, water, and lumber, which I think Andrewism's video on the commons address as well. What about glow sticks, dynamite, chewing gum, and hair gel? Are you comfortable with the market system of distribution for these things as long as the corporate structure is democratically owned and operated? Or do you have a more radical solution for them? My first instinct is that, you know, during transition, I definitely think decommodifying food is going to be a higher priority than decommodifying chewing gum and glow sticks. But not necessarily because, uh, like, those are both consumables. So I, I don't know if the distinguishing factor between what's market-based and what isn't would be whether it's consumable or not, but more so starting with the most essential things first. I wanted to answer the question very specifically. They ask, what about goods where the use inherently involves its destruction? If we answer that question specifically, we can set principles that help us answer all these questions in, in general. Goods where the use inherently involves the destruction breaks from the typical lending library format. So we need principles that can help us understand what the point of that is and how to handle it. I mean, the primary thing is when it is destroyed, what becomes of its parts? Like how is it destroyed and what, what, what does it leave behind? Yeah, and then, destruction is a transformation. So you have to think about transformation into what? Yeah, it's not, very rarely is there something that ceases to exist because it's used up. Like a battery doesn't cease to exist when it's out of energy. Then it exists as this empty shell of a battery that no longer powers anything. Right. So goods where their use inherently involves their destruction. Another way of saying that is that their goods where their use inherently involves their transformation to something that's no longer useful or no longer useful for what it was useful for. So what about that stuff? I think this is the most fundamental question of an ecological society is how do you transform waste into something else in the system? How do we sort waste into things that are usable again? How do we create a circularity? How um, do we design things in the first place so that the waste products, the end point of the transformations are the most useful? Like incorporating that, not just as this catch-up game you're playing at the end of like, oh, what do we do with all these glow sticks? But like, how do we design glow sticks so that at the end point, there's something useful there? Exactly. Yeah. Because we're, in addition to all of the other horrible trajectories that we're on as a species, we're all aware of like CO2 and greenhouse gases, biodiversity loss, ocean acidification. We're also on a trajectory of a huge amount of like waste processing debt, we're building up waste, unprocessed waste all around the world in huge amounts, like huge, incredible piles of unprocessed waste, yeah. waste that's all mixed together where there's diamonds next to diapers, you know, like it's just a big stinky pile. And that's a debt. That's something we're passing on to the future that eventually it's got to be sorted and treated. It's got to be figured out because there's useful shit in there. There's gold in those hills metaphorical and literal gold. You know, if if there was any plot of land that had as much gold as the dump, they would tear it up to find all that sweet gold. There's a lot of gold in the dumps of the world. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But it's stinky. I do think the question of things like, especially like dynamite and glow sticks are really interesting 
ends of the consumable spectrum in terms of like, how do we think about these things and regulate them within a library socialist economy? Because on the one side, you have glow sticks, which I think are, you know, not an essential good, but if we can produce them in a way that's ecologically sustainable, I think that's a really good thing. And they're kind of like inherently not reusable. Like you crack the glow stick, the two different chemicals mix together, and then they glow for a few hours and that's it. There's a potential maybe for like reusable glow sticks where you could like screw the end off and like fill it again with two different things. Or like maybe there's something that could be done with used glow sticks that is useful. Like maybe whatever chemical soup is left over after glow sticks have been used up can be some useful input into some other process again. Obviously, if you could make biodegradable glow sticks, that would be ideal. I would say, you know, glow sticks wouldn't be the top priority for thinking about how to make them work in a society. But in in a bigger society where you want to have celebrations, you want to have, you know, cool things at concerts where you can like wave glow sticks in front of people's faces while they're high on drugs. Like, <laughs> I think there's room for that in a library uh, socialist society. And I think there's definitely ways to make it more sustainable than current glow sticks. And I think... Um, that would be a thing people would have fun working on. I think I'm going to take the contra glow stick position here. Do we need glow sticks at all? Now, this is the sort of thing that we can debate and discuss among stakeholders in a directly democratic library society. I don't know the details on what chemicals are doing the mixing. I don't understand the impacts on the environment. Maybe it's possible to make reusable ones, like you said, but maybe... Yeah, I, I get, could go without glow sticks. <laughs> well, I mean, everyone could go without glow sticks. Yeah, I get it's one of those questions where like the need want distinction, you have to get into glow sticks are a way of meeting needs for like fun and like things for celebration for they're I think they're originally for like I associate them also with like camp like Boy Scouts or like the military or something. Yeah, they might be good as like a type of emergency supply. I hadn't thought of that. I've mostly encountered glow sticks at like parties. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's true too. I think they are technically also an emergency supply. So I think those type of glow sticks might be higher priority. But yeah, glow sticks are a strategy for meeting various needs. And it's definitely possible that in a library socialist society, they might not end up being an ecological strategy that we end up employing very often. But yeah, the question of do you need glow sticks, I think is just it's malformed in the same way of like, do you need pineapples? Well, no, nobody needs pineapples, but we do need food and pineapples are one way to get food. If I were to leverage a prediction, I think that maybe LEDs, very efficient type of lighting, could be something that could displace glow sticks. Yeah, having bracelets that instead of a glow stick bracelet, it's just an LED that can be turned on and off and would last for years and not just use once and it's over. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. We'll leave that to the, the people of the future to determine the details of. Uh, we're, we're not trying to make a blueprint. We're just, we're talking about principles. And quick to address the point about dynamite, I think that's an interesting one because I don't know if they're like, I assume there's some kind of thing left over, like the case, bits of the casing. But mostly what you're getting is this reaction of an explosion that's breaking things apart. Like it, its whole purpose is to destroy, to explode. and to. So I, I imagine that dynamite wouldn't be 
as it isn't in the current society, I've never seen dynamite for sale at Walmart or anything like that. Like <laughs> it wouldn't be a widely Next available the, the Slurpees consumable thing. It would be available for when it's needed. Like if we were, you know, putting a train around a mountain, you might need to dynamite out a piece of it in order to put the tracks somewhere or I, I think they use it in mining operations. I assume there will be some mining in the future. We might need some dynamite for that. But yeah, it would be only used where we've thought through the ecological results of what this dynamite explosion will do. We've thought through like, why are we using this dynamite? There's a set of principles that have been arrived at democratically and based on the uh, sustainability imperative for like how and when we're using dynamite in different situations. And that would be, I think, a community democratic decision in basically all cases. I don't think dynamite would be a sort of individually available consumable. Although maybe maybe there'd be something like a shooting range where for fun, you could just go explode some dynamite. If it's deemed possible and it's like a recreational act, I could see that being a potential thing. I think that would be fun to like explode things with dynamite for fun in a safe environment where there's it's contained and there's safety instructions. I don't know if that's possible or feasible or ecological, but I like the idea of it as a potential. But in general, yeah, I think it would be used for things that it's necessary for, similar to how it's done now, but probably with more stringent regulations and not just at the sort of profit whims of corporations and whatnot. Dynamite explosions at a dynamite explosion range is just a way of meeting a need. And there are a lot of ways of meeting those needs for fun, excitement, explosions. Yeah. You know, dynamite can be distributed for the purposes of construction, mining, or entertainment, but always in the hands of group of professionals. But yeah, I mean, who knows? I don't think dynamite's like a huge inherent need. But Marie Kondo says, if it brings you joy, keep it. So we keep dynamite. Thank you for asking. Um, <laughs> yeah, so we'll have to like, I don't know if they still use dynamite to bring down old condemned buildings and stuff. I assume things like that will still need to happen. Yeah, so, not to yeah. confuse dynamite and TNT either. Are they different? They are different. Ah, interesting. But they're both similar in that they cause explosions. Yeah. And they could be pr regulated similarly. I think the principles would be, yeah, similar. I mean, but we're, we're reaching the end of our expertise. If you have a reason to think that TNT and dynamite should be regulated differently, we've got a comment section. Um, a feedback forum where you can follow up with more information. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if there's any dynamite experts out there, let us know if we sounded like complete buffoons here today. But <laughs> So yeah, another part of this question is, are you comfortable with a market system for distribution as long as it's democratically owned and operated or do you have a more radical solution in mind? So yeah, like you said before, I don't think that whether or not something is in the market system should be prioritized based on whether or not it's consumable. Like, I don't think dynamite should just be an open, just because it's run by a democratically run dynamite production company that you can buy as much dynamite as you're like. I think what's hard for me to answer about this question is like, it depends how we're defining market and in what time period we're talking about. I think like the utopian vision of library socialism is a world where at the very least in people's day-to-day -day lives, they're not interacting with the marketplace. They're interacting with political systems of abundance and care and participation. 
But the path on how we get there could involve all sorts of different directions that are unpredictable. There's the creation of non-market spaces, but then there's also the optimization of, you know, human rights and dignity within market spaces, like democratically owned and operated sort of stuff. But then even then there still can be exploitation in that sort of environment, or there can be really beneficial social arrangements. Markets get credit for a lot of stuff under capitalism, but there's aspects of the current system that we would want to keep and aspects of it that we would want to get rid of. And like, there could be things in the future that are extensions of, or are even rooted in the current market system, which we wouldn't recognize as markets in practice. So they, they could have things that look like markets that started in a non-market place, like the markets are abolished and then something kind of markety starts arriving. Like for example, people trading privileges, on a network of um, what people are entitled to in society. So you trade your extra pineapple to someone for something that you want, like an extra day on the RV or something like that. The dynamite range. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's kind of markety, and de it depends on your terms, and we could get really critical and break all this down. I feel like there are really, really big questions at play when we're talking about reforming and restructuring society and trying to predict every detail of the transition from a money-based society to a non-money-based society is hard. So I'm, I'm comfortable with different things depending on what happens. Yeah, I think in the utopian vision of a library socialist society, I don't think there's necessarily any need for having markets, even for things that might be considered kind of frivolous, like glow sticks or whatever. I think there's ways where we can probably just make glow sticks or glow stick like LED things or what, you know, like get those desires met for anyone who wants them met in a way that's ecologically sustainable and, you know, probably abundantly available to everyone at all times. I think that's the end goal for almost anything that you could think of. Like, how do we make this abundantly available to anyone at all times without needing to trade, without needing to pay, without needing to do anything because we've worked out through the production and use cycle how to do these things sustainably on an ongoing basis that doesn't uh, impact the environment negatively. That's the ideal end, I think, of all goods, consumables and otherwise. Yeah, in a, in a library economy, glow sticks, dynamite, chewing gum, and hair gel would be part of the democratic social metabolism of the society between stakeholders based on knowledge about resources and they'd be held in common, distributed based on need abundantly. But am I comfortable with that not being the case at times in history? Well, I'm going to have to be. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rake up texts. Oh my god, Devin, you sweetheart. This bouquet of flowers? What's the occasion? You make me feel so special. Well, I know it's been a long time, and heck, you deserve it. Being the perfect partner. I love you so much, Taylor. Aw, Devin. Big eye emoji. There is one other thing that I needed to tell you, though. Uh, also good news. I quit my job today. Wow, that is such great news. You know, I've long held an ecological critique of your job as an energy efficiency person because of Jeevan's paradox. I'm so glad that you're finally switching to careers that are more consistent with our shared values of environmentalism. Aw, you're the best partner ever, big eye emoji. 
Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we never saw eye to eye on Jivon's paradox. I think fuel efficiency is still a worthy goal, but I found an even better job that I just couldn't pass up. Something totally wonderful, environmental, huge benefits potential here. I'm going to be working at a new startup growing cultured tuna flesh in vats. It's going to be amazing for our oceans. Devin, we talked about cultured meats. Their environmental impacts are on par with conventional meat infrastructure. And they're grotesque. I thought we had an agreement. Well, currently they're about on par with current infrastructure, but with advancements, they're going to be way better. And that's not even taking into account non-energy-based environmental concerns. Don't you care about the poor tuna fish and the health of our oceans? It's like Cronenberg, like Frankenstein, like living flesh existing only to be consumed. Ugh. I knew there had to be a catch with these flowers. That is just like way beyond what you ever do. First of all, Cronenberg makes wonderful movies. And second of all, this has nothing to do with Cronenberg. Tuna flesh is delicious. And being against growing it in a vat is just prejudice on your part. Period. Devin, you have to quit this disgusting and ecologically damaging job. You're being such a shithead right now. Oh, I have to quit my new job? I didn't realize you were the boss of me. The only boss in our household is the hard ecological limits of nature, and you know that. Which is why I thought you'd be excited that I took your advice and quit my current job for a better one. I knew you had personal disgust issues, but I trusted that you could overcome them in the name of the data, the science, and what's best for the future of our planet, but I guess not. Look, your twisted Cronenberg utopia full of fleshy tubs burning through the resource base of our planet is not one that I want to be in. I'm packing my bags, Devin. This is just disgusting. You are disgusting. Goodbye. I guess I'll just enjoy all the omega-3s that I'll be getting from my tuna flesh without you. Stop saying tuna flesh. You keep on saying tuna flesh. That's so disgusting. You're trying to get under my skin? All caps, tuna flesh, tuna flesh, tuna flesh. I'll be able to type that as much as I want now that you're gone. Real mature, yeah. You're a real catch, you know? You were created in a lab vat. You're so perfect. And so, for Devin and Taylor, who bonded as children over their shared love of Captain Planet, and who kissed for the first time at a youth protest against climate change, not even the bonds of a shared environmental commitment could withstand the intensity of disgust some feel over the idea of growing tuna flesh in a vat. And so, these were the breakup texts. All right, we got any questions left in that bag? Any final questions for the day? Oh, tucked down here in the corner. One last little slip. Ooh, I'm excited. Pull that out, unfold it, unfold it again, unfold it a third time because it's really sort of folded up. <clears throat> what is the library socialist approach to pee, poo, diarrhea, etc.? Well, that is a wonderful question. It's a smart question. Yeah. It is. And it's a smart question for them to have asked during our food episode because some people might say, why are you answering this question? Food's disgusting. I'd never eat that. Poo, on the other hand, you know. <laughs> uh, I meant to say poo is disgusting. <laughs> <laughs>
poo is disgusting. I would never eat that. I understand your confusion, but bear with us. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we've been circling around this all episode. We've Just talked like about a turd it. around a toilet that's flushing. Yeah. <laughs> we've talked about it in various ways, but waste equals food, people. When you're talking about an economy of circulating abundance, part of that circulating abundance is the circle of life between poo and food. Poo and food really are the same thing. I think in the future we might call it poo food as a kind of, or poo pee food. It's like I think one. We probably won't call it that. <laughs> <laughs> probably not, but we could if we wanted to because they are kind of the same thing. I remember when I was younger and I found out there's like a lot of protein in human poo because we eat a lot more protein than our body can process. Mm. And that's why flies like it. They want to get some of that sweet protein. Well, yeah, there's a reason that insects eat poo and that poo is a good fertilizer. Yeah, not just with literal human poo, but with all the poo, all of the refuse, all of the transformed into no longer usable for what it once was usable for, which is poo is a great example of something transformed in when it's utilized, it's transformed into something that is really, really not good for what it used to be good for before yeah. it was used. <laughs> you can't just throw it in the microwave. <laughs> Sprinkle some sugar on top. and it's, it's not renewable like that. But it kind of is because all you got to do is you know process it a little bit, mix it into the soil, and then grow more food with it again. I'm simplifying here, but... It is being used. Like, we need that. We need the pee and poo. <laughs> yeah, when the, I found out when this is done in real life, when human shit is used to grow <laughs> plants or food, it's called biosolids. It's apparently a fairly common practice. Yeah, you said that in BC we produce... Uh, According to this infographic here from the British Columbia Ministry of Environment... It was like a football field 25 meters deep. Exactly. Every biosolid every year. Every year. That's a lot of uh, biosolids. That's one big energy bar. So, you know, rather than returning your poo to the library or to the, you know, grocery store, grocery store, future restaurant, you don't return it there. We would have different depots for returning your Imagine poo. Imagine if you did, though. <laughs> Which I just want to add like, poo returning depots is a thing that also we have a current problem in our society, which is that. Oftentimes, poo returning facilities are paywalled or like you have to buy something in order to use the bathroom. Right. There's places in city cores a lot of the time where there are no available bathrooms to people. Uh, that would change in a library socialist society in a sort of every book to its user thing. There would be abundant bathrooms available, abundant places for people to return their pee and poo to the system, accessible to everyone, mm -hmm. big enough for wheelchairs to get in open to all no weird uh trans person in a bathroom it's horrifying none of that you know there would be a socially just bathroom distribution in a library socialist society and all that pee and poo would be used to grow the delicious food that we feed our families around the table yeah you process it for parasites you maybe extract some of the drugs that are in i understand that amphetamines are excreted in urine there may be a changed form in some type, but, you know, it might be useful to use that to produce more amphetamines. Oh, that'd be interesting, pulling all the pharmaceutical drugs from the sewage from the bio and then solids, putting it yeah. back in pills and just like... Yeah. I know, I'm, we're trying to describe utopia here, so we want to describe something that sounds appealing. And, like, I'm sure not everyone's, like, super stoked on 
eating shit. But also, we're not even dropping like the big fully automated luxury waste equals food thing, which would be direct processing. And (laughs) let's all be happy about the fertilizer thing, because if not, we're going to bring out the big guns and talk about the idea of technologically processing pee, poo, diarrhea, etc. directly into food. Yeah, maybe those big vats of meat, you just drop a bunch of poo in there and that's what transforms the protein into meat. Or maybe it's just a poo protein bar, you know, it's like... We season it a bit to make the poo undertones less noticeable. It's earthy. If you want your pineapples, you got to eat your poo bars. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's already a pretty direct line using the fertilizer. But, you know, hey, if it's the most ecological option, I think we have a duty to at least explore a more direct eating of poo route. You know, depending on the utopia, we might be eating heavily anyways it's part of life i'm not it's not even it's not oh this is my utopian idea we're gonna eat poo we we already do it we're already eating poo every day it's time for us all to grow up and just say we got to get really good at that we got to improve and maximize the waste circle Uh, something that i should say about bio waste uh, in practice in the real world this is often criticized for good reasons sometimes there's ecological impacts specifically through like heavy metals in the waste or contaminants that aren't properly filtered out yeah there's sort of economic pressures or like profit driven incentives to sell this these biosolids this bio waste out to people without making sure that it's like actually healthy to put it on the farm yeah the 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 techno-social matrix of capitalism is not successfully running bio waste programs at the degree we'd like to see in a utopia and so it's worth noting that like we would advocate for a bio waste system that is you know, as perfectly as possible, ever more perfectly filtering out anything harmful. And if we're unable to do that, we have no particular attachment to bio waste. If it turns out it's not feasible energy wise or through filtering to have it be turned into literal food growing product, the principle of waste equals food and the idea that every output of one system in this context or digestive system is the input of a new system. There's other ways you could do that. Maybe we'd use it to make uh, bricks, shit bricks to build houses. I think, uh, yeah, the engineers will think of something (laughs) to do with all that bio waste. I like the idea of shit bricks personally. Yeah, me too. Then everyone could say accurately, I'm shitting bricks anytime they shit. (laughs) Oh yeah, true. That is one benefit of that. Yeah, it's a society where everyone gets to shit bricks. Literally shit bricks. Yeah, maybe there's problems with that too. But the general principle stinky houses, but yeah. Stinky houses. Yeah. Hopefully I think that's a that's a surmountable problem. I'm gonna probably cast my ballot yeah. surmountable. But yeah, the the principle applies. At the end of the day, we don't want just an ever growing pile of human shit forever. No. We need to figure out something to do with it. Yeah. Uh, that's safe. It doesn't have a negative ecological impact. That's what we strongly endorse. Yeah. You know, when we're talking about utopian futures and we're like yeah, you know, uh, cool technology or like advanced social relations. There's still these questions of like, what happens to the poo when you flush? And will there still be flushing or will there be, will there know? still be poo? <laughs> and the answer to both is yes. I mean, I assume there will still be flushing. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a good method, I think. We could replace toilets with like in anus nanobots. Um, right, right. Depending right. on the trajectory of technology there and the energy. It's just a little implant you stick up there and then as soon as the poo gets to the end of the rectum, it like gets gobbled up and... 
Yeah, it gets somehow processed into something or other. Drops at cubes at certain times of the day. <laughs> yeah, I'm, without some kind of transporter technology, you would still be pooping out something. Absolutely. But Unless the nanobots were crawling in and out. Oh, yeah, and just flying away with little <laughs> microscopic parts of poo. <laughs> Imagine just like on the bus and just like there's nanobots forms leaving everyone's asses. I was imagining them being so dispersed you don't notice. It's just kind of always happening. We just know that there's constantly poo flying through the air on nanobots in the future. Yeah, I think there's a good chance we'll... I, th I think the shape of pooing, peeing, diarrhea, etc. in the future is one of those things that you really can't easily predict. I do expect major changes, though. Yeah, and I maybe it's a lack of imagination on my part. I think we'll st it'll still mostly be toilets, major collection facilities, processing. Pretty Actually, pretty similar to what we do now, but just improved. But you know what? Maybe I'm just not revolutionary enough on this topic. But... Also, human shit is such a small part of the waste circle paradigm. There's waste circles everywhere that need to be closed. Yeah. We need to get through our accumulating waste sorting debt. In the future, there will be no trash. You'll know that we've reached the library socialist utopia when there are no more landfills and then everything after you're done using it, just gets returned to the library in one form or another, whether you're pooping it out into a toilet or bringing it back to the library in the back of a, a cart of some kind. Everything gets returned. Everything gets reused. It's a vision of circulating abundance. Making that work means working within limits and understanding limits and sort of politicizing those limits and, and pursuing luxury in the context of the real limits there's ways that we can make it work that's why we're talking about the great shit cycle yeah celery into shit shit into celery everything in its right place or as i like to call both of them shit celery one thing <laughs> we're not i don't think people are going to go with this it's not part of library socialism waste equals food it's the same thing it is part of library socialism no it's not yeah it's not <laughs> We'll decide at the democratic meeting. We'll let the people of the future decide that sort of thing. But I think people of the future will guffaw with hilarity at the idea that they were like, people used to think food and waste were opposites. No, they're the same thing. We don't even use different words for them. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't think that's where it's going because there is a really big difference, right? No, I, you're right. It is a useful distinction. I'm not, I'm joking. Obviously, we're going to have hangups about the idea of like getting shit on us or being exposed to shit in places where shit shouldn't be. Uh, like, that's not a hang up, like, free your mind, man. No one, care, <laughs> no one should care about shit. <laughs> like, you're just, we're all walking through an inch and a half of shit everywhere we go because we all freed our minds. No, that's yeah, not what I'm advocating for. There's real reasons why we have discussed reactions to shit. It's uh, it's it's, it's, it's useful. Meant, we're meant to be adverse to it. There's we're we're meant to keep like we shouldn't poo in the fridges or on the food prep tables. We shouldn't uh, bring they, our poo back to restaurants. <laughs> they're part of a cycle, but the two ends of the cycle do need to be kept pretty separate. Because yeah, the use is transformation, and the transformations in a really specific direction yeah thank you so much for the poopy diarrhea question um but yeah i think we can have a rich cornucopia of 
different types of delicious foods arranged in carnivals of food, almost like the grocery store or farmer's markets. We could be producing food in more places and distributed ways and ways that are resilient to social collapse, environmental issues, giving us the ability to transfer food around the world, produce more than we need, but also produce food in every corner of the world enough to sustain the populations where they are to the highest degree that we can. And all of this does, it fits into the logic of a coordinated, directly democratic, large scale system with an ethos of libraries. And in particular, the idea that, you know, everything, I I had this sort of thought of like under the current system, a lot of times things don't get to go where they are needed. The right thing doesn't find the right place under capitalism. Homeless people don't find empty homes. Everything's in its wrong place under capitalism. And library socialism is about trying to get the right things in the right places. Yeah, every book a reader and every reader a book. So yeah, under library socialism, everything finds its right place. Everyone has access to what they need and more, a variety of choices. A blending library of everything also includes the ability to access a wide variety of foods with little effort, with friends and social environments. I got kind of worried we associated library socialism too much with eating your own shit, which is at most a very, very small part of library socialism, if that, and I'm willing to if if we need to, we can swear it off entirely. We promise. If people are totally against it, we can yeah. figure out ways to use it. Flexible on this one. Not I, a passion point for me. But I don't think we'll be eating our own shit in any way that we aren't current. That isn't like, yeah, fertilizer. Yeah, except the, the poo too. bars. I don't even think we need to do that, you know, at all. It's just a joke. Uh, I think most food or all food. <laughs> will be delicious um i mean food is already delicious food is awesome i love food i love eating food oh yeah i love making food to some extent when i'm not busy or tired i love you know that jazz sort of cooking where you don't have an exact recipe and you're just sort of like trying it out and just toss a bunch of garlic in and it's delicious hope for the best yeah garlic and onions and then partway through you're like oh i put this in a different i put these stuff in here in a different order than i should like the potatoes are breaking down or whatever variety. Of, and that's like a learning experience. You like learn about the dynamics of food. Oh, yeah. What a or like, yeah, these potatoes are a bit too hard. Didn't time it out right. Yeah. I shouldn't have put the eggs in right at the beginning with the onions. I've never done that, but that's an example of a type of mistake someone could make. Yeah, yeah. You always <laughs> want to put the onions in first, really. If I'm making a stir fry with potato chunks, sometimes I microwave the potato chunks so that they cook all the way through first. And then you just add them in at the end, get a bit of a sear on the edges of the potato. It works really well. Oh, yeah. That sounds good, the sear. The sear, that's what catches my attention here because that sear is so important. Because, yeah, just microwave chunks of potato. They're going to be mushy. Uh, but we put them in the pan, you get that sear, a little oil. We got to do a cooking episode sometime. I'll get some recipes I've been meaning to share with you just personally. Yeah, sure. I'd be down. I've been doing some baking recently for the first time in my life. And uh, made some chocolate chip cookies. I made an apple cake. Uh, nice autumn. Delicious. <laughs> the, um, I'm just laughing at the word autumn. <laughs> <laughs> it's like an autumn pastry. It is. It's autumn, autumn pastry. I'm, well, delicious. I'm a little. I'm. I'm jealous. I haven't baked anything recently. My aunt used to make uh, apple squares, apple cake, a bunch when I was a kid. So I texted my mom for the recipe. She got it for me. 
And I made them, and they're delicious. I made this sort of like high-risk bachelor chow the other day, just cooking for myself. I'm just High like high-risk bachelor chow. <laughs> yeah, right. I mixed in a couple different ingredients. It's just like sort of what, what we had, like a a leftover like tofu dog, and right, some right. different like vegetables that had been had already been started for some other recipe. And I cooked that up with some spicy soy sauce. And it was it was mid. It was like not very good, but it was fine. It was passable. I right. ate it all like a little patriotic soldier. But I saw these really cheap veggie burgers at the grocery store the other day, so I bought them, and I've eaten one of them, and it wasn't very good. So now I'm trying to think if there's like if I could mix it into a stir fryer. I don't think I want to eat it as a burger anymore, but as like a mealy vegetable protein, I feel like it might mix well into like a bowl of rice with vegetables and like that's my next thing i'm gonna try with the these burgers because i don't they're not great burgers i think it's a smart move you've been to any good restaurants recently uh no i went to california pizza kitchen in san francisco uh which was (laughs) fine but i had a gift card for it but it was like really expensive for like pizza that honestly in my opinion it's supposed to be like fancy i guess but i felt it was pretty with a name like california pizza (laughs) kitchen it better be fancy Uh, i actually thought it wasn't gonna be fancy with the name like california i thought it was just gonna be like mass produced big we spent 50 dollar gift card on like two pizzas and an appetizer and we're still kind of hungry after like i ate a whole pizza and i was like i'm still kind of hungry wasn't a great experience. The pizza was fine, but I don't know. <laughs> this is an update in the Aaron and Pizza series, <laughs> along with your <laughs> Pizza Hut experience here. Oh, yeah, right. I found out recently that a, a Thai restaurant that I really like that I haven't been to very much during the pandemic, but I used to go to all the time. They, uh, they got shut down by the health department for pests temporarily. But they're open again now. Oh, nice. Um, but yeah, that's the only restaurant experience I can think of recently. And I haven't had a lot of extra restaurant money. Have you eaten today? Uh, not really. A little bit. I just had like a little bar. You want to stop recording this episode and, and eat? Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, thanks especially <laughs> if you're donating on Patreon. We're going to go get something to eat. Feeling a little hungry, honestly. Thinking about all these, even with the pest control thing, it still made me feel hungry to think about that Thai restaurant. Thanks for listening. Uh, Yeah. Oh, yeah. We've got a question. We've got a question box. Something is linked in the description of this episode. If you want to ask questions for a future library socialism Q&A, your questions are greatly valuable to us in thinking about what to think about. Goodbye. Goodbye. Wrong. Wrong. Seriously. Wrong. And it sounds right. Wrong. I made a mistake. Wrong. Wrong. Completely wrong. Wrong. Seriously. Wrong. No, seriously. Wrong. Wrong. Seriously. Wrong. Wrong. Completely wrong. Wrong. Wrong.